tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about Christmas in the real world. Earlier when they had gotten together and and read from our passage in Luke chapter 2, I'd like to read it again. But before I do, pray with me just for a moment. Heavenly Father, we again thank you and praise you and glorify you. Lord, we know that for many, many people, Christmas is a time of joy and celebration and a time of family. But for others, this is the first Christmas without their father or their mother, their husband or their wife, or a special person in their life. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray that you truly will bring comfort and joy, grace, and mercy. Lord, we pray that we could take just a moment and remind ourselves, Lord, of all that you've done for us and the joyous expectation that we have that if we listen carefully, you'll speak to us. And so we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke chapter 2, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from the Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I was surprised to see this year the American atheists launched a campaign across cities in America. They posted this billboard. It features a young girl. You can see her there. She's writing a letter to Santa. The letter reads, Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales. The billboards were placed in the cities of Memphis, where my brother happens to be, in St. Louis and Fort Smith, Arkansas. And the story and the billboard reminded me of just how dangerous Christmas can be. You see, the atheist claims an appeal to reason and logic and evidence to substantiate their position. The billboard suggests that what children really, really want is to believe in a holiday absent God, an absent Christ, an absent hope. 
And I read an interesting statistic at the Denison Forum. It said that 80%, 80%, 80% of non-Christians celebrate Christmas. And I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I lived in that kind of a world, really distant from God and distant from Christ and distant from the Bible. And my family celebrated Christmas, but it wasn't a Christmas where Jesus had center stage. I think it's possible and even popular to celebrate Christmas with no regard to Jesus at all. As a matter of fact, I did a little tiny search and I came up with an article that read 25 ways to celebrate Christmas. What was interesting about all the 25 ways that were mentioned was that Jesus never came up in, in a single sentence. But I'd like to suggest to you that the real fairy tale lies outside the church, outside the gospel. Who is the person who's really selling the fairy tale? Because you see, there's nothing so strong and there's nothing so safe in an emergency of life as the simple truth. And the simple truth is that God loves you. And the simple truth is that Jesus loves you. And the simple truth is that a real God sent a real Savior into a real world to die a real death for our sin. And, and he rose from a real grave. You see, the very definition of a fairy tale, I looked it up. A children's story about magical and imaginary beings and lands. You see, the reality is the Bible isn't simply a children's story. And it isn't about magical and imaginary lands. It's about a real place and a real time. The fairy tale differs from an oral tradition in that it's usually a single identifiable author who writes something. There's a very famous children's story that was written for Italian children over 120 years ago. It was written by a man named Carlo Collati in 1883. It happened to be the year that my great great-grandfather was born. He wrote a story and it was called Pinocchio. And some of you are familiar with that story. It's about a man who whittles a piece of wood and that wood is somehow magically imparted with life. It sounds more like the atheist story. The atheist who says, nothing became something and something all of a sudden came to life and that something that came to life started to think and started to feel and started to live, which seems more implausible to you. You see, 
The elements of a good fairy tale is that it has a special beginning or ending, like once upon a time, or they lived happily ever after. A fairy tale usually has a good character and an evil character. There's usually royalty and poverty and magic and enchantments and reoccurring patterns and numbers and universal church or tr truths or so-called universal experiences or a coming of age or the possibility of love or the possibility of forgiveness or the possibility of hope but the bible story about jesus is not a tall tale that was meant to deceive the bible story about jesus is good news for everyone who believes and in verse 1, when it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The story of Jesus began with a real world decree. And by the way, the word decree translates a much maligned word. It's the word dogma. It's the thing that most people hate. I hate dogma. I hate teaching. But the word in the ancient world meant a declaration that was binding or a lawful order, an imperial decree. It would later be used to describe words that would be used by people that were authoritative. And it says, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. You see, there's nothing phony or not real about Caesar. He was born Gaius, Octavius, Thurinius in Rome in 63 BC. His identity and his reality is one of the most attested things in all of, of human history. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, who adopted him as heir before his death. In 43 BC, Octavius formed what was called the Triumvirate, which was a list of three people who ruled. And when Augustus spoke, people listened. And when he wrote something, it was responded to, and he demanded a census, and when he spoke, armies marched and nations trembled. There's nothing phony or unreal. You see, the story of Jesus doesn't begin with once upon a time. The word, by the way, registered, appears also in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. Speaking of all of the people whose names are written in heaven, who are registered for eternal life, in the scriptures, there's a portrait of God, but in Christ, there is God himself. One of the reasons why we know Augustus is real is because we have the writings that come down from us. We have the statues that were made and even coins that bear his image. This coin would have been minted about 10 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. You see, the Roman world surrounded the Mediterranean area and they had governors and principals who worked in every province and the Romans kept records. When Luke 
wrote these words. It was an invitation for anyone reading these words to go and check out the records themselves. The Jews were exempt from Roman military service, but God would use the decree of a pagan Roman emperor to fulfill a prophecy. It's found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, out of you will come forth to me the one who will be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. The strange and disturbing thing about Micah's prophecy is it was written not 100, not even 200, not even 400, not even 500, but 700 years in advance. How much notice do you need to come to a party? And God gave an invitation and a notice that he was coming to this very real world. The living God revealed and ordained the birth of Jesus and then he gave very specific details. And in verse three it says, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. The Romans took a census or a registration Every 14 years. What is the point that Luke is trying to make? Mary and Joseph will be drawn to Bethlehem. Caesar believes he's the ruler of the Roman world. But Caesar's decree is about to bring a young couple who lives 70 miles away to their ancestral homeland in order to fulfill God's prophecy... And some of you might be thinking that your life is your own, that your thoughts are your own, that your decisions are your own. It never occurred to you that God in his grace and his mercy might have picked a mate for you or picked a marriage for you or picked children and grandchildren for you. That God in his grace and mercy orchestrates plans and purposes where you come together and where you begin to realize that the story of Jesus isn't just a story that was made up in order to entertain people or manipulate people, but that a real God was reaching out to you in real love. In verse 4, it's also a real-world destination. Joseph also went up from the Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. A real couple left their real home traveling the 70 miles. You see, we have images in our culture and traditions in our our culture where we envision Mary traveling on a little donkey the 70 miles. But most people walked back in those days. Imagine that you had to travel from just south of Colorado Springs all the way to Littleton, Colorado on a donkey. I know it's bad enough driving in your SUV. Most people are torn 
with the images that they see and the reality that they read about. Because you see, the city of Bethlehem, according to some scholars, may have had a population of 100 people, maybe 200 people. That means that there were less people living in Bethlehem that are, than are in this sanctuary right at this moment. Bethlehem was the place where Rachel, Jacob's wife, died giving birth to Joseph's younger brother Benjamin in Genesis chapter 35. This is the place where a Moabite named Ruth met and married her husband. This is the place where David was born. This is the place where he grew up as a young man. This was a place that would have been familiar to David and his family. Just like the place where you grew up, that were familiar to you. It was a real place. And in verse 5 it says, To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. It's one thing to make the 70-mile journey. It's another thing to be pregnant and making a 70-mile journey. Not only was it a real-world destination, it was a real-world delivery. It says in verse 6, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Few things are more exciting than those last few weeks and those last few days before the baby comes. The text says, so it was while they were there. Where? Bethlehem. The days were completed for her delivery. It doesn't say that the day they got there is the day that she delivered. It doesn't even say the day after that or the day after that. We're not told. But rather that her pregnancy would come to full term. And there she would deliver the child. Mark Lowry sings a very popular song. Many of you know it. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. This isn't going to be an ordinary birth. This was going to be an extraordinary birth where the baby who would be born would be remarkable, not only in the way that he was born or the manner in which he was born, but in the circumstances of his life that he would accomplish. You see, the Bible says that the Christian experiences deliver from the curse of a broken law. You see, in a very real world, in the real world in which you grew up and in the real world which you live, people are sometimes hurt and broken. The Christian experiences deliverance from the condemnation of sin. It makes perfect sense to me that an atheist would want you to avoid church because guess what? If there really is no such thing as God, then there probably is no such thing as sin. And if there's no such thing as sin, you, you probably don't need a savior. But what if everything that you see and everything that you hear and everything that you know corresponds to reality that the real world in which you live, people are hurt and people are broken and people are injured and people need help and hope. You know, so many people, they want hope. 
but they envision a hope that doesn't include God and it doesn't include Jesus. They want deliverance from evil, but they're reluctant to define what it even is. They understand a world of darkness and they understand the difference between darkness and light, but they don't understand the difference between hope and hope being in something that's real. The Bible teaches that Jesus comes not only to deliver us from death, but to deliver us from the fear of death, deliverance from self and deliverance from those kinds of things. And the Bible teaches that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Yeah, listen and enjoy. Because guess what? When that baby lets one loose, that means his little lungs or her little lungs are functioning the way they're supposed to. You know, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. But without the way, there's no place to go. Without the truth, there's no such thing as knowing. Without the life, there's no such thing as living. And in verse 7, look what it says. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The birth of Jesus is covered in a single verse. And the text doesn't tell us where Jesus was born. We might think of an inn as a hostel or a hotel when you probably have that image of an inn. You imagine a place where visitors can come and rent a room, but in that culture and in those circumstances, they didn't have hotels and motels. David and Mary are returning to their ancestral home. The word in translated here is really an interesting word because in the New Testament, it always, when it's used in reference to a private home, means a guest room. It means a guest room where guests could normally stay, but the circumstances were such that Mary and Joseph couldn't stay in the guest room. And so if you envision a Mary and a Joseph with no friends and no family and no relatives, that's probably not true. But if you envision a Joseph and a Mary in cramped quarters, in difficult circumstances, you would get it a little bit more right. Let me give you a picture of what a first century peasant's home would have looked like in the first century. There would have been two squares. There would have been a big living room area where moms, dads, brothers, and sisters would eat and sleep and entertain. And then there would be another square and archaeologists who are digging up the first century would, would find that, that there would be steps. And sometimes the rooms would be up against the side of a cliff, but sometimes they would be on the ground. And in the second square, you would have to go about four feet down and you would have to take the stairs. And as you're taking the stairs in this sunken room area, 
they would often place the livestock there. And between the lower floor and the upper floor, they would carve into the wall little places where the animals could feed. And those were mangers. Was Jesus born in a barn? Probably not. Was Jesus born in the heart of a home? Probably. There was no room in the guest quarters. That means that Mary would have to give birth in broad daylight in the family room. And in our culture, we value privacy. In that culture, they valued family and community. The point that Luke is making is that Jesus is born into a real world in poverty, in humility. Luke describes Mary wrapping Jesus in swaddling clothes. These are thin strips of cloth that would have been used to bind babies to keep their arms and their legs tight and the baby warm and secure. Some of you know that babies can be born in pretty shocking conditions. Do you realize that this year, this year, 10 thousand babies were born inside of prison that's right not under ideal circumstances years ago local news outlets reported finding a baby wrapped in a shower curtain in an aurora trailer park this was right before Christmas, and they found the baby wrapped. A deranged woman had stabbed a baby's mother and removed the unborn child from her womb, and it was a miracle that the baby survived. In a separate shocking story that was covered by the examiner, the headline read, Frozen Baby Mom Sentenced Newborn Left on the Side of the Road to Die in the Cold. There's nothing... There's nothing fairy tale about that. That the very real world in which we live means that people are born under difficult circumstances. And part of the point that is being made is Jesus is born in desperate poverty and unthinkable humility. But a real, a real child was born. A real emperor issues a real decree. A real prophecy written 700 years before the prophecy ever came to pass comes to pass. A real couple travels to a real destination and a real baby is born in reality. The Pew Research Group reported that nearly 75% of all Americans believe the major elements of the Christmas story in the gospel, but there are still some who don't. Many Americans believe in the virgin birth and the angelic announcement and the wise men and the shepherds. But there are people who read these words and they don't believe it, even for a moment. You know, it's easy to get wrapped up in what the world is trying to sell us. The world is trying to sell us a story where God doesn't belong. And Jesus doesn't belong, and faith doesn't belong, and hope doesn't belong, and forgiveness doesn't belong. But the Bible says exactly the opposite story. 
The Bible says that a real God sent his real son into a real world, a broken world, a sinful world. Some people in this world will try to convince you that the Bible and its claims about Christ are a hoax and not history. But the Bible teaches that God knew all along that a real baby coming into a real world is going to result in a real cross, in a real death and real redemption. The Bible teaches these things. Well, does that mean that we abandon our nativity scenes? Does that mean that we go home and we throw them into the fireplace? I don't think so. I heard the story of a little girl who was looking at the family nativity scene and she said, Mom, Mommy, this is such a beautiful activity scene. I loved it. Because it really is an activity scene. A real God is active in a real world, acting in such a way that people can have hope. You see, God is a personal God who provides a personal Savior and a wonderful gift. And the Christmas message, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon. Hope of peace. Hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus becomes poor. He's born under difficult circumstances. Humble circumstances, impoverished circumstances, but it doesn't end there. He's going to grow up in a very real world, and he's going to say the most wonderful things that have ever been said. He's going to do the most wonderful things that have ever been done. The author Max Lucado in his book, The Grip of Grace, writes, ponder the achievement of God he doesn't condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion. He doesn't relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin and incredibly sentences himself. God's holiness is honored. Our sin is punished. We're redeemed. God does what we cannot do so that we can be what we dare not dream that we can be, perfect in his sight, redeemed, forgiven. There is nothing so strong and safe in an emergency of life than simple truth. And the simple truth God really does love you. He really did send his son into a broken world. He really did die on a cross. And he really did rise from the dead. At this time, I traditionally share with you a poem that I wrote, it seems now, long ago. "'Twas the night before Christmas in David's hometown, the city was crammed with people pressed down. Joseph and Mary searched, seeking some room, her belly so swollen, a child in her womb, 
Pilgrims were piled on top of each other, flesh pressing flesh, children, fathers and mothers with patience and prayer. The couple conceded personal privacy was desperately needed. The innkeeper sighed and said, we're unable to provide a shelter just this simple, stable, and surrounded by cattle and goats in a manger. Things continued to worsen and soon got stranger. When all of a sudden contractions they came, muscles contorted and twisted in pain. Both mother and father were weeping and crying, the pain and the horror. She felt she was dying, but she pushed. And she pushed. And the baby did come, a beautiful baby, a beautiful son. And she wrapped her new baby in swaddling clothes and remembered the name the angel had chose. His name will be Jesus, the Savior of all, Emmanuel, Rock, Redeemer. Recall and voices were heard from angels on high, proclaiming God's word from Bethlehem's sky. And the angels appeared to the shepherds by night. Attending their flocks, beheld the great sight. Glory to God and goodwill to men. A savior, redeemer, deliver from sin. And the child who was dressed in the swaddling clothes, he listened and listened to praise and the prose from the cries of his mother and the songs that were sung, glimpsed into the future, a cross where he hung. And the prophets and poets and pundits and people all crammed into churches with pews in their steeples would listen to preachers and point to their stories about saving grace and all of God's glories. But who would have guessed on the night before Christmas that most of the world would have certainly missed us because Jesus, oh Jesus, is nowhere in sight as the day in the darkness slips into the night On the night before Christmas, in a freshly swept stable, the blood and the sweat and the cries, if we're able, we miss the whole point of what we have done and the need for a Savior and the need for a Son. And perhaps on this Christmas, we'll remember what's real. We'll remember the purpose. We'll remember the deal of why Jesus came to an earth such as ours to deliver our souls in this fateful hour. And so when your Christmas comes with great cheer, remember your soul. Remember, my dear, remember the Savior who came in the night and remember your sin as it slips out of sight. And Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that this will be the best Christmas ever, where so many people's dreams will come true. But I pray in particular for that person who wonders if her dream or his dream will ever come true, if the darkness will ever leave their heart, if the emptiness will ever leave their life, if the despair and the pain and the depression will ever go away. And Lord, I pray that that all of those things would happen today, tonight, and tomorrow as people trust you and look to you and really believe in the truth of the story 
of the reality of a real God sending a real Savior into a real world to die a real death, to help real people forever. In Jesus' name.